Our Lord, we thank you for the daily dependence that we can place upon you and know that you care for us, that our every need is a concern to you and that you're totally capable of dealing with each and every need that every one of your people has all the way around the world. And even though this is very difficult for us to grasp, we believe it to be true because the Word makes that clear. And Father, we know that you are present with your people wherever they are meeting on this, your day. And we thank you for the group of people that are here in this facility this morning and for each and every class that is being uh, held this morning at this time. And we pray for your presence and, and your blessing. And we pray for the service that is going on at the same time that you will be there. And Lord, guide us in our study of the life of Moses in this class now. I pray that the lessons we learn will be from the Spirit of God and that they will be fixed in our hearts and will become a part of our very being. And that our attitudes and our actions and our reactions and our thoughts will all be guided by the Word of God as empowered by the Spirit of God. We just submit to your authority in Christ's name. Amen. You'll turn to the ninth chapter of the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 9. I'd like to read the first seven verses, Exodus 9, verses 1 through 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and speak to him. Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will come with a very severe pestilence on your livestock, which are in the field, on the horses, on the donkeys, on the camels, on the herds, and on the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing will die of all that belongs to the sons of Israel. And the Lord set a definite time, saying, Tomorrow. The Lord will do this thing in the land. So the Lord did this thing on the morrow, and all the livestock of Egypt died. But of the livestock of the sons of Israel, not one died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, there was not even one of the livestock of Israel dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he would not let the people go. Last Sunday we began to look at this uh, particular plague that came upon the land of Egypt. In the first two chapters, that is in chapters 7 and 8, the first two that deal with the plagues in Egypt, we studied about four plagues. First, there was the plague of the conversion of the Nile River to blood and, and all the surface water of the land. And then there was this plague of frogs, frogs all over the land. When the frogs died in the, in the, in the plague of frogs, it, the scripture tells us that the whole land was filled with the stench of the rotting corpses. And you can imagine what a few score of them would do around a home, what would tens of thousands of them, all over, millions of them all over the land would do to the land of Egypt. It, I would think it would make it intolerable for life. And then there was the plague of gnats. And then there was a plague of, of flying insects of various sorts that came upon the land of Egypt. And in chapter 9, as we have begun to uh, look at it even this morning, what we discover as we probe now into the fifth plague and beyond 
is the increasing seriousness of this power encounter between God and the forces of evil in the land of Egypt. Because with each plague, God ups the ante. God increases the intensity of this plague. I mean, it's one thing for the water to turn to blood. That's a little bit, you know, inconvenient. And, and it's another thing to have a bunch of dead frogs. But as you move along, you discover the plagues become more and more personal to the individuals. And we begin to see that even in the fifth plague. Here we discover that the animals are struck. And the animals that were uh, primarily uh, destroyed were animals that were important for transportation, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, and also animals that at least to some part in Egypt were important for food and for clothing, the various animals of the herds and the flocks of the land of Egypt. Then to underscore the sovereignty of God, that it is the God of Israel who is bringing this about. All of the livestock in the land in which the Israelites lived, the land of Goshen, was exempted from the plague. I mean, it just speaks volumes. And, and you know, how blind do you have to be to not begin to see the reality of who really is God? Now, as we look at this particular fifth plague, the striking of the domestic animals in the land of Egypt. We discover that God is not only crippling the economy, but he is also attacking the religious system of Egypt yet again. The two most sacred animals in all of the Egyptian pantheon were the bull and the cow. Now, the bull has been a symbol of gods in, uh, in, in many lands for thousands of years of history. And it was also in Egypt. There, there are many bull gods in Egypt, or I should say there were many bull gods in Egypt. Today, Egypt is an Islamic country. There aren't any bull gods in the, in the sense of idols uh, being worshipped in the land. But by far the most prominent of all the various bull gods in ancient Egypt was the god Apis, A-P-I-S, who was the bull god of Memphis. Now, Memphis, of course, city known as the Great White Wall, was the northern capital, if you will, of the land of Egypt. Egypt had two great capitals through most of its history, Memphis in the north and Thebes in the south. And the bull god at Memphis was one of the top gods in the Egyptian pantheon. And the worship of this god can be traced back clear into the old kingdom of Egypt. Now, when we first uh, began to talk about Egypt, I gave you a uh, an outline that covered, uh, you know, kind of a brief history of Egypt and the Old Kingdom, which dates back to at least 2800 BC. So we're talking about more than a thousand years before the time of Moses. Already, Apis was being worshipped at Memphis. In the New Kingdom, which is the time when uh, Moses was in Egypt and, and the Exodus occurs, in the New King, in the New Kingdom, Apis has become equated with Ta. P-T-A-H, who in the uh, Egyptian theogony was uh, the creator God. And according to their theology, Ta spoke and the worlds were created. Isn't that a kind of an amazing thought? Because that's basically what scripture tells us. God spoke and the worlds were created. I wonder where the Egyptians got this idea. It wasn't from the word of God. Obviously, Satan wants to institute substitutes for the truth. And so 
this god Ta is created, and, and he becomes more or less synonymous with Apis here. So important. Now this, to me, is really incredible, and I, I trust, it, I'm sure it will be to you, but so important was Apis in New Kingdom Memphis that they had herds of sacred bulls. And when these sacred bulls died, they put them in a sarcophagus. They buried them in a mausoleum in the, the uh, necropolis of Memphis. I, I mean, you know, they spent huge amounts of money burying bull. <laughs> and they did a lot of it. Even more widely worshipped was the goddess Hathor, who was the cow goddess of ancient Egypt. Now, both Hathor and Apis, of course, were the god and goddess of fertility. And uh, they were very important because that's what brought uh, progeny to people and to animals and caused the crops to grow and so forth. Hathor was usually represented by a cow and often depicted right on the wall of a, of a, of a um, tomb is drawn a cow, and that represents Hathor, but she is also often represented as a human being with cow horns on her head. She is the goddess of love, the goddess of motherhood, and she's often associated with music and dancing and things of that nature too, but primarily of love and of motherhood. Now the influence and the understanding of Hathor was grasped in Greece, and the Greeks equated Hathor with Aphrodite. And Aphrodite, of course, was the Greek goddess of love, who in the Roman world becomes Venus. And, and as you study these ancient religions, you find how they keep interlinking with one another. And, and what this reveals is not that that is truth. It reveals that Satan has a particular program that he has been following and a, and a plan by which he's been attempting to replace the truth with a lie which would be credible worldwide. Hathor was supposed to be especially present when the divine Pharaoh was born. You know, when, when the son of the sun god was born, the eldest son of the reigning Pharaoh who was the heir apparent at his birth, Hathor reigned supreme at the time of that birth. Now, so what is God doing here? God is destroying the animals, the, the domesticated animals of Egypt. And amongst those dying are thousands of cows and thousands of bulls, and probably even bulls in the sacred herd of Apis, probably maybe even the entire herd. So what God is doing in destroying the bulls and, in the, and destroying the cows is he is destroying the symbols of these gods, which reveals that the gods are powerless to defend the symbols of their own deity, powerless before the God of Israel. Now, I've, I've emphasized this before, but I, now can we really begin to grasp the dilemma the Egyptians were in? First, Osiris and Isis are shown to be powerless because the, the, the river Nile is turned to blood and frogs crawl out of it and there's nothing these gods and goddesses can do about it, so you know, they're, they're rendered virtually non-entities. And Apis and Hathor are made to look foolish. But the Egyptians have a very difficult alternative, and that is to believe in the God of whom? Of the race that they had subdued and made into slaves, a hated race of people, 
a race of people that was despised by every Egyptian. Every Egyptian had this superiority complex that they were far better than these hated Israelis. And now their God is superior to their own gods? How can that be? I mean, how can you make that, that leap of faith, if you will, from, from a pantheon you've grown up to, to believe in and you've seen power? I mean, in, de in demonism and the worship of these things, there is power. You, you've seen it happen. You've seen things happen, such as the magicians performed before Moses and Aaron. And, and, and yet, obviously, this, this God of Israel, who is not given in any image, that's been one of the big drawbacks, not, true, not really, but to pagans, when they have come to the faith called Judaism or Christianity, is the God's invisible and he's not rendered by any image. How can that be? Because they've always associated God and spirits with forms of some sort, either an animal form or a human form or a rock or, or whatever. And it's really hard to make this mental transition, to use modern terminology, to make this paradigm shift, as many like to say today. What, what is happening, of course, is the Egyptian pantheon is being made obviously what it was and that is a human fabrication that is not real, that is not genuine. And the Egyptians are having a real difficult time with this. Now in verse 6 of this particular passage uh, that we read, we, we read a very strong statement. It says, all of the livestock of Egypt died. Now we have to take that in reference back to verse 3, where the, the scripture says, uh, that there will come a very severe pestilence on your livestock, which are in the field. And the reason I make that emphasis is there are subsequent pestilences and, and disasters which fall upon Egypt, which the scripture says destroys livestock in Egypt. Now, if every single animal in Egypt, other than in Israel, dies in this plague, then there wouldn't be any leftover animals to be harmed in later plagues. So obviously what we're seeing here is that this pestilence falls on those animals which are in the field. And those which are in some kind of enclosure are protected from this pestilence, whatever it happens to be. And so there are some that survive in order to go through the later plagues which come upon the land of Egypt. But certainly the die-off was massive. Now for you and for me, whom the only animals we may have are uh, pests in the yard, or a cat or a dog or a fish or, uh, or whatever. It may be a little bit hard to relate to how difficult this was for an Egyptian to suddenly discover that virtually his whole herd of animals was dead. Certainly, most Egyptians didn't have very many animals to start with. Probably most of the peasants had, if anything, an animal or two. And if that animal dies, you, you've lost about everything. Uh, that you had. And so this was a very, very serious matter for the Egyptians. But it's very interesting how Pharaoh reacts. And we read it there in verse 7. And he sent, and behold, you know, he, he sent somebody down to the land of Goshen to check it out and go from place to place and discover how many of the livestock of Israel had died. And he discovered, of course, that not even one of the livestock of Israel had died. You know, not even if it was the normal time for that animal to die, did they die because God kept them alive as an example that the plague did not in any way fall 
upon God's people in the land of Goshen. I think Pharaoh was greatly disappointed by this. I think he hoped to find that there was a die-off in Goshen so that he could say, yeah, look, your God isn't really as great as you say. But Pharaoh, rather than humbling himself before the one that was obviously the sovereign God, I mean, there was no question. He hardens his heart yet another time. And this becomes kind of a broken record scenario here, uh, as Pharaoh hardening his heart over and over again. And as it is hard for us to read, you can imagine how difficult it was for Moses and Aaron to constantly face it. Verse 8 of Exodus 9. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take for yourself handfuls of soot from a kiln, and let Moses throw it toward the sky in the sight of Pharaoh. And it will become fine dust all over the land of Egypt, and, it will, and will become boils breaking out with sores on man and beast throughout the land of Egypt. So they took soot from a kiln and stood before Pharaoh. And Moses threw it towards the sky, and it became boils breaking out with sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils were on the magicians as well as on all the Egyptians. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not listen to them, just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. <laughs> you can imagine how humbling it was for the magicians who had, with great arrogance, you know, tossed their rods down, and they had become snakes, you know, and, and they had duplicated the blood and duplicated the coming of the frogs, and now they're covered with the very boils that didn't touch any of the Israelites. A very, very humbling experience for these people. God is turning up the heat. Up to this point, the plagues have been a great inconvenience. The plagues have been economic trouble and disaster for the land of Egypt. But now, the plague has attacked the very bodies of the Egyptians themselves. The seriousness of this plague, I think, is understood when we begin to look at the parallel that comes, uh, obviously, to your mind as it did to mine in the book of Job. Let's turn to the second chapter of the book of Job for a moment, reading at verse 3. Job 2, 3. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has will he give for his life. However, put forth thy hand now, and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to, his, to thy face. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your power, only spare his life. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a potsherd to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. Skin for skin, all that a man has will he give for his life. 
We've seen this many, many times. If you've read the various accounts of history, people will surrender the very last thing they possess in order to keep their body intact. When faced with torture of some kind, they will do anything, say anything, often in order to prevent their body from being harmed. In Job's case, of course, it was a satanic attack upon him which God used for his own glory and for Job's own good. In, in the case of the plague here, it was God's doing for the purposes of his glory also. And really in the long run for the good of the Egyptians if they would wake up and understand the truth. Plague of boils. Boils all over your body. From the top of your head to the crown of your foot. Why was it that the magicians couldn't stand before Moses and Aaron? Probably because they had boils on their feet and couldn't stand. Retiring probably to seclusion just to try to get, get some relief. God commanded Moses to do something strange. He said, go to a brick kiln, grab a handful of soot, and go into Pharaoh's presence and toss this soot into the air. And then a fine dust will settle over the land of Egypt. Well, obviously, that handful of soot didn't spread by the wind over the whole land of Egypt. The, the soot is symbolic. The soot came from a brick kiln. The, the brick kilns were a place where many of the bricks, the outer bricks at least, that were used for fortifications were hardened. The inner bricks didn't have to be hardened, but the outer bricks had to be hardened for protection. And, and what the brick kiln symbolized was the labor of the Israelites. The, the hundreds of years, apparently, that they had been laboring there in the land of Egypt and that they had been demeaned and, and uh, distressed and tortured and used by the Egyptians. And so by, by flinging this soot into the air, it was a symbolic act of, of God now bringing judgment on the land of Egypt because of their ill treatment of God's people, their mercilessness towards the people of God. What, pa what, what pathogen caused the boils? We have no way of knowing. The plague was obviously a miraculous work of the hand of God because it was both instantaneous and universal. Only the Israelites were again exempted from this plague. The Hebrew word here implies a burning spot. It, it implies an inflamed breaking out of the skin with pustules. It had to be kind of a gross thing. Now, the passage does not say that the Egyptians died from these boils, which therefore probably means that the boils were not symptomatic of a lethal disease like smallpox or the bubonic plague or, or something of that nature. In fact, that the condition broke out instantaneously, pandemically, and included the livestock virtually eliminates all diseases generally known. What, what disease can you think of that would break out instantaneously, universally, and attack man and beast all at the same time with boils? Something unheard of, at least up to that time in human history. It was clearly God himself breaking into time and space to accomplish his purpose. And even the magicians had to retreat to sickbed because of this disease. Now you think about this. There are many scholars, as we have emphasized before, who do not want to admit that God ever intervenes into 
time and space. They have this deistic attitude that God got the whole thing going and kind of stood back from it and just watches it. And as long as we go by the basic laws that he set in motion, everything's okay. But the scripture over and over again tells us that God's hand reaches down. In fact, in this passage, it says the hand of God. First it was the finger of God, now it's the hand of God. And later on it'll be the fist of God, so to speak, uh, as, as God brings these plagues upon the land of Egypt. It's God's doing. It's not just a happenstance thing, you know. God quickly got Moses and said, look, Boy, these things are going to happen. I better get Moses going here so he can predict them at the right time. I mean, God knows what's going on. God is the one who perpetrates uh, these particular plagues in the land of Egypt. Now, was Pharaoh personally touched? Scripture doesn't say. It doesn't say that Pharaoh had boils all over his body. Did he? Didn't he? We don't know. It's very possible that he did. But whatever the case was, the scripture says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh has hardened his own heart time after time up to this point. And when the scripture says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, what we're seeing here is God confirming the hardness that Pharaoh has already established. He's built this concrete bunker around his heart, rejecting the things of God, and God is simply saying, so be it. You have established it you will live with it. Interestingly, Pharaoh now stands alone because <laughs> all his magicians are sick in bed. And so he has done the amount of his magicians to lean on here, his soothsayers. And he has to stand alone facing Moses and Aaron, stand his own two feet without any support, but he seems quite able to do that. Verse 13 of Exodus 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would then have been cut off from the earth. For indeed, but indeed, for this cause, I have allowed you to remain in order, that, in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. Still you exalt yourself against my people by not letting them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will send a very heavy hail, such as has not been seen in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore, send, bring your livestock and whatever you have in the field to safety. Every man and beast that is found in the field and is not brought home, when the hail comes down on them, will die. The one among the servants of Pharaoh who feared the, Lord, the word of the Lord made his servants and his livestock flee into the houses. But he who paid no regard to the word of the Lord left his servants and his livestock in the field. As we look at this uh, seventh plague, we discover that a great deal more space is given to this plague than to the fifth and sixth plagues combined. Because this plague will for the first time exact the supreme price, human life. Up to this time, animals have died, the Egyptians have been inconvenienced, 
Their economy has been shattered. They've been touched physically and, and life's been made miserable, but they have not died as a result. But in this case, those who do not heed the word of the Lord will die as the hail comes down and pulverizes them. We have here another early morning encounter. God says to Moses, get up early and go out and meet Pharaoh. I think after a while, Pharaoh would be reticent to get up. They sleep late. <laughs> get up in the afternoon or something, hoping maybe Moses would forget to come. As in other confrontations, two things are made very clear here. First of all, God says through Moses that Pharaoh might understand that the authority behind the demand that the people be released was Yahweh, the God of Israel. And of course, that's the great rub. You know, if Moses had come in the name of some other pagan deity for whom the Egyptians could find a parallel, Moses, uh, 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 and, and this was a great power like the Hittites or somebody that had been a powerful rival of Egypt and, and whose armies had defeated Egypt on many occasions, it's very possible that Pharaoh would have seen the light and said, okay, well, that's okay. But the fact that this is the unseen God of the slave people who have been living this land for 400 years and are considered to be uh, people of little worth except building things, just couldn't ha handle it. Just couldn't handle the whole idea. But God keeps driving it home. The God of the Hebrews, the God of the Hebrews, the God of the Hebrews. And then secondly, that Pharaoh was to release Israel to worship God. This was the command, the demand that God was making upon Pharaoh. Then God ordered Moses to make a very ominous statement, which we read in verse 14, where God says, I am now going to send all of my plagues. Now, if Pharaoh had really heard the word there, his knees would have been knocking as were Belshazzar's as he saw the handwriting on the wall. But Belshazzar was a man maybe with a little bit more uh, insight, even though he was probably drunker than Pharaoh. But Pharaoh seems to not see anything he doesn't want to see. What God is saying here is, in other words, Pharaoh, you ain't seen nothing yet. I'm sure God didn't use bad Hebrew or bad Egyptian uh, when he spoke. But this is the idea. You haven't yielded to me in spite of six plagues. Six plagues which have demonstrated unequivocally the power of the Almighty. You have not yielded to me, therefore I am going to break you. I'm going to bring you to your knees before me, whatever it takes. And just in case Pharaoh didn't understand why God was bringing these plagues upon Egypt, and certainly so that Israel would remember these events which happened. This which enabled them to cross the Red Sea and to leave the land of Egypt. And that throughout their history, they would understand that it was God who brought them through this difficult time. God, through Moses, in the second part of that 14th verse, said, Why is he doing this? So that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. 
depending on when the Exodus occurred and who was the Pharaoh of the Exodus, this concept of a universal God may have been totally foreign to the Egyptians. To them, their gods were Egyptian gods. And they understood that their pantheon was separate from the Hittite pantheon and separate from the Babylonian pantheon or whatever. They had no idea or a concept of a universal God. Now, in the 14th century in Egypt, there would come a king who would uh, adhere to a single god in Egypt. He was a sun god, but he was considered to be the only god and a universal god, not only of, of Egypt. But this was probably prior to that. I believe the Exodus occurred in the 15th century rather than the 13th, as some want to adhere to. And therefore, this precedes that particular event in Egyptian history. So the idea that they understand that this God of Israel reigns in all the earth was really hard for them to grasp. Because they didn't know how big the earth was anyway. But certainly other gods ruled other lands as they commonly thought. He wanted them to know who was the sovereign God. And he wanted them to know that all the other gods were non-entities, were at the very best powerless before him. And it was of eternal importance. We have to recognize we're dealing with an eternal matter here. The real matter is not whether cows are dying and whether boils are on Egyptians or, or whether frogs are in the land. The real matter is where are you going to go when you die, O oh, Egyptians? Well, the Egyptians had a long history of believing really that only the pharaohs and the, and the high-ranking people had any hope of eternal life. The rest of the Egyptians just kind of died and they had no idea what, what went on with them. But the upper class went through this process and could be deified and so forth. But the common Egyptians, had they ever thought about their own eternal soul? Well, we have no way really of knowing. Later in Egyptian history, actually, uh, the pantheon of gods was brought to the place where the typical Egyptian had some hope of life after death. But God was trying to make it clear that he was sovereign in life and sovereign after life. And he was trying to remind Israel, in the midst of all of this, Israel, you serve the true living God. They needed to know this so that they would follow his prophet out of the land. Now, you and, and, and I would probably think, Whoopee! We're going to be free and we're going to get to leave the land. Let's just go. But you know, if you've been living in a particular place all your life and your parents and your grandparents and several generations had been living here, this is all you knew. And then suddenly says, somebody says, let's get out of here and go to another land. Are you just going to quickly get up and go? Even if it means being freed from slavery? A lot of people would stop and think about that a long time. And there would be those who even wouldn't. And we know, of course, you've already read ahead many times, I'm sure, that when they were in the wilderness, they, they moaned and groaned and wished they could go back to Egypt because they missed the food. <laughs> you know, there's no leeks and garlics out here. What's, what's food without leeks and garlics and whatever else, you know? And fish. And tired of this manna. They had been raised in a land where all of the gods were false gods, but they knew about these gods. The Israelites certainly knew about the pantheon of Egyptian gods. The Israelites knew about Amun-Ra. 
and Apis and Hathor and uh, the whole pantheon of Egyptian gods. And we trust that most of them didn't believe in it, but at least they, they knew it. But you know, this passage is also recorded for us. Because we need to be reminded, and that's part of what Scripture's point is, we need to be reminded that we serve the true, living, only sovereign God. That there is no other God. In, God, in fact, God says over and over in, in Isaiah, is there another God? I know not one. And this God is not incapable of doing anything he chooses to do. I'd like to read, in fact, from Isaiah, the 40th chapter. To me, one of the inspiring chapters of Scripture. There are many, of course, such chapters. But kind of a fascinating statement made by this prophet, what, 2,700 years ago? Beginning at verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? and marked off the heavens by the span, and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure, and weighed the mountains in a balance, and the hills in a pair of scales. Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or who or has his counselor, as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult, and who gave him understanding? And who taught him in the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and informed him of the way of understanding. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. To whom, then, will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? As for the idol, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot. He seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. Do you not know... Have you, have, not, have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is he who sits above the vault of the earth. It's a real fascinating <laughs> statement here. Because the Hebrew basically says, he who sits above the sphericity of the earth. And you think about the fact that we're talking about 800 years, more or less, before the time of Christ. 700 years before the time of Christ. Isaiah is writing about the spherical earth. This is a long time before the spherical earth was a concept in, in humankind. The ancient Greeks began to come to this concept. Some of them like Eratosthenes. But it wasn't even really widely accepted until just a few hundred years ago. But obviously God knows the shape of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He, it is, who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, 
but he merely blows on them and they wither, and the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me, that I should be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their hosts by number and calls them by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. The sovereignty of God is proclaimed over and over and over and over again in Scripture from, the, from Genesis through Revelation. And that is one of the very major points that God is trying to drive home to Egyptian and to Hebrew and to us through these plagues which are coming upon the land of Egypt. By witnessing all these calamities that fell upon Egypt and realizing their own powerlessness when faced with great catastrophe, Israel was being prepared to learn truth for themselves. And one of the major truths that they would learn would later be spoken by Moses and recorded in the 33rd chapter of Deuteronomy where God says these words to Israel. Deuteronomy 33, verse 26. There is none like the God of Jeshurun, that is Israel, who rides the heavens to your help and through the skies in his majesty. The eternal God is a dwelling place and underneath are the everlasting arms. And he drove out the enemy from before you and said, destroy. So Israel dwells in security. The fountain of Jacob secluded in a land of grain and new wine. His heavens also drop down dew. Blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, who is the shield of your help, the sword of your majesty. So your enemies shall cringe before you, and you shall tread upon their high places. Israel needed to know that they serve the only sovereign God. They had no fear from enemy nations or the gods of other lands because they alone serve the true God. Let me uh, end today by reading how Paul, 1,500 years later, amplifies these truths in two different places. One place he amplifies this truth is to the pagan Greeks in the 17th chapter of Acts reading at verse 22. The scripture says, Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus. Ares is the god of the Greek god of messenger god, the god of war, not the messenger god, the god of war, parallel to the Roman god Mars. And Pagus has to do with hills, so we're talking about Mars Hill here, at, which is just a short distance to the west from the Acropolis in Athens. So on the Are Areopagus, Paul could look back to the Acropolis, crowned by the Parthenon and, and the other great temples that were dedicated to Athena, the, the goddess of Athens. And there on this particular site, Paul says, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown god. <laughs> I mean, they're hedging their bets, right? Just in case we leave a god out, let's make an altar to him. What therefore you worship in ignorance, I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, 
does not dwell in temples made with hands. And I think he swept his hands towards the Acropolis, crowned by that fabulous uh, structure called the Parthenon to Athena Parthogenesis or whatever, the uh, supposed virgin birth uh, queen of the Athenian, what do I want to say, gods of the Athenians. The God who made the world and all these things is Lord of heaven. He does not dwell in temples. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. And he made from one every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitations, that they should seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far off from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. And even some of your own poet, poets have said, for we also are his offspring. Being then the offspring of God, we ought not to think of that divine nature, it, think that that divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. In the heart of the Acropolis, as you approach from the Propylaea, which is the entranceway, towards the Parthenon, there was this huge statue of Athena, goddess of war, draped in her robes with a... With a War helmet on her head and a spear in her hands. The great goddess of Athens. Not made in images of stone or gold or silver. And then to us, to the church, Paul finally again emphasizes God's sovereignty in Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11 where he says, But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Well, next week we'll pick up uh, and finish that plague and move on.